It's the fourth day of our autumn, seven day session, 9th of May 2018. And um, before we return to our text, um, since we're um, roughly the halfway point of the session, it seemed like a good idea to um, do a review or a kind of reminder um, for ourselves about what we're doing here. In the uh, Avastamska Sutra, um, when Shakyamuni Buddha awakened upon seeing Venus in the, the morning sky, he said, Wonder of wonders, all beings are Buddha, endowed with wisdom and virtue, lacking nothing. And this, this is really um, the foundation that our practice rests on, uh, faith in our innate Buddha nature. This is what the, Buddhist, the Buddha taught. We just chanted Master Hakuin's chant and praise, praise of Zazen. In that, it's, um, Master Hakuin says, like water and ice, without water no ice, out no, outside us no Buddhas. Outside us no Buddhas. Came across a Tibetan quote which um, talks about the same thing with, with using some other images, analogies. And this is Jamgon Kontro Lodro Taye. Getting butter from milk is only possible because milk already contains cream. No one ever made butter by churning water. The prospector looks for gold in rocks and not in wood chips. Likewise, the quest for perfect enlightenment only makes sense because Buddha nature is already present in every being. Without that nature, all efforts would be futile. All our, all our efforts in our meditation and in our zazen and our lives are, are based on this faith that we have the potential to wake up, to um, evolve into Buddhas, outside us, no Buddhas. The problem, though, is expressed in the second part of the Buddha's exclamation at his awakening. He said, but because people's minds have been turned upside down by delusive thinking, they fail to perceive this. In other words, they fail to perceive that they are Buddhas. Even though our Buddha nature is right here in plain sight, we, we are experiencing the proof of it at every moment. The fact that I can speak and, and 
you can hear me, is evidence of our Buddha nature. So this gives gives rise to to um, to two sides of our our seeking. Let's say we have we have this we have faith in our potential to awaken, and out of that faith comes the aspiration to do so. And that, that this is really the, the these two things are, are the fuel for the practice. Okay, so if if that's our nature, if the, if that is human nature, is is awakening, then how can I realize that? Why is it that my life is anything but lived out of that at all times anyway why is it that there's so much suffering in the world so much greed and hatred and and injustice so there 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 comes up this aspiration this desire to move in the direction of understanding awakening So we then we have a, um, a destination to realize this truth for ourselves. But we need a map to get there. And the map really is, is uh, the Buddha's teaching in the, most, in the most fundamental forms of Four Noble Truths. And the eightfold path, the suffer, suffering, which which maps out suffering, the cause of our suffering, and the way out. Or as as um, Master Harkwin said in his chant, he boils it down uh, to the cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. All the practices we do, whether it's sitting, um, the breath, koans, shikantaza, and also our chanting, our bowing, our samu, our work, all of these uh, different practices have one sole aim, really, which is to see through our ego delusion. So we come with this in mind, uh, but then we discover um, when we start to to do the work, to, to uh, sit down and do zazen, we discover that our mind is not really fit for purpose. It's not really fit for waking up. 
it's in quite a bit of disorder quite a lot of the time um, full of um, delusions of one kind or another and certainly it won't stay where we want it to a lot of the time but wanders about we can um, categorize three main sort of ways in which our mind is um, working at cross purposes with our, our waking up first of all it it, it obsesses constantly about ourselves about uh, what we perceive to be our needs and wants um, and if not that our shortcomings and if we start to, to look at these, uh, this, these obsessive ruminations we find that at the core it's all about me I, me and mine Also, besides this, this obsessive thinking about ourselves, we pretty much compulsively um, identify with our thoughts. And we, don't, we don't see them as thoughts much of the time. And then thirdly, we imagine that we, that we actually have an accurate and comprehensive picture of a world that exists independently of us, outside of us. The Dalai Lama says that the, big, the beginning of right view, which is the first of the, um, the strands of the Eightfold Path, he says, right view, the beginnings of it is when we begin to see that we are deceived by appearances. We begin to understand how limited our picture of the world is. How un-three-dimensional it is. It's kind of just... Um, very biased in a lot of in a lot of ways So we, so we enter into this, this journey of awakening, the great way, as it says in the Four Vows. Um, we aspire to attain this great way, and yet we come up against this mind of ours, 
and we can we can um, understand that uh, the first practice we take up, the breath, although although we can't narrow it down to just this purpose, but it largely uh, addresses the first of our three um, limitations that our mind has when we start out. The first one is is our obsessive thinking, the wandering mind. So taking up the breath practice, concentrating on the breath. Um, every time we uh, notice where our mind has wandered, and we come back, we shift our attention from our wandering thoughts and back onto the breath, um, we're um, strengthening our ability to put our mind where we want it to be. And this, this repetitive um, shifting back to the breath um, actually modifies neural pathways. It changes the brain. The mind going down a, uh, a kind of a particular groove in the mind is um, a habit. And because it's something that's conditioned, uh, it can be changed. Breath practice is also a, a great place to start because um, it, it touches on um, very deep patterns in us, pre-verbal patterns. How we breathe affects our experience of our body and our mind and our environment. And so working with the breath, allowing the breath to settle um, is, is healing in a very profound kind of way. So it's a practice that, that um, is, goes very deep. You might think that it's, it's something preliminary or, or um, just forget beginners, but it has this, this potential to really be transformative. Shift our whole way of being, really. But the emphasis with the breath is, is on uh, concentration. Settling and instilling the the unruly waves of the mind. A metaphor is used uh, of uh, st stilling the the waters of the mind so that the surface of that water becomes smooth and one can see into the depths of the water. Well, sometimes the image is used of the water then is able to uh, reflect things. You can't 
uh, effectively reflect while it's roiled and the surface is broken. This, this second problem we have, um, basic problem that, that works against our, our uh, developing wisdom, is that we believe our thoughts. And of the different practices that we do, uh, shikantaza. Um, particularly helps to address this issue. In, in Shikantaza, um, we start off um, simply by very methodically relaxing the body from, from the scalp to the soles of our feet, so allowing um, any, any tensions anywhere in our body to, to loosen and dissolve. And then we just sit, paying attention to our body-mind as it sits there. The whole body, so this is where it differs from breath practice. In breath practice, we, we focus on the physical sensations of the breath, inhalations and exhalations, and the pauses in between. In Shikantaza, we're still aware of the breath, but it's in the context of the whole body, and the whole body experienced as much as we can as a, as a single organism. And obviously we won't um, be experiencing every part of the body, but we we just focus on what we what what we can experience in any given moment, without giving priority to any particular sensation. Not getting involved in this or that part of our uh, sensory field. If we're in pain, we just experience that pain in the context of the whole body. Really, this means the whole body always implies body-mind. So it really means our whole being. Sitting, we just sit and experience our whole being in that moment. Or out of the zendo, the same. We just um, keep our focus on our whole being in in whatever activity we're doing. And without words, this is a very important aspect of Shikantaza, to, to uh, the Chinese name, silent illumination, brings us out. Two parts, silence and awareness. So it's different from, say, Vipassana practice where one notes one's mind states. This is no, no um, act of noting, but just sitting in awareness in a kind of this broad-minded approach. 
So in, in this regard, it's, it's, you can contrast it with the breath, breath practice, which is, is keeping one's focus on one thing, the breath. Shikantaza, it's a, more a sense of, of um, an open mind into which things arise, have a certain life, and then drop away. This, this, uh, this open but um, highly vigilant stance um, is very helpful in our, our beginning to, to see our thoughts clearly. We create a kind of space in which we can um, begin to, to uh, see our thoughts as thoughts. Of course, this also happens with the other practices, but just um, say the, the emphasis is a little bit more on this with uh, Shikantaza. Now, the instruction in Shikantaza is to not get involved in or, or attach to any of the, of the physical sensations that arise, but it also implies to applies to our thinking. We see thoughts as just the product, um, a kind of um, uh, if we include if we include the mind as a sixth sense, then thoughts are just the products of that sixth sense. And to see them that way, so we can overcome what what Alan Wallace talks about as cognitive fusion where where we um, take take the the content of a thought at, at at face value give an example of this say say we're sitting in um when we sit back down after a kinhina, the person sitting next to us does something and we, we interpret that as being that they're annoyed with us or that they don't like us. Um, and so for, for the next two days in session, we go on um, thinking that the other person is annoyed with us. And then after Sishin, we discover that we were totally wrong about it. But that that, that thought coloured our experience for those two days. We might have kind of reacted emotionally when we, when we would be sitting next to that person, even getting angry at them for being angry at us. Whole whole proliferation of of thoughts and emotions coming out of that one choice to believe the thought that we had. And it can be specific things like this, which we might have a chance to uh, test and, and find out whether it was somewhat connected to reality or not. But it can also be very global things, global thoughts that we have. And these often can can colour our whole life or parts of our lives. Things like, um, I don't deserve to be loved, or 
I'm a failure. You can probably you can probably um, think up your own ones here. One psychologist described these these being our our core deficits, these things that we believe firmly in, but they're um, so global as to be false, really. So abstract and yet they can have a great deal of power. So Shikantaza helps to create a space in which we can see a thought as a thought, a, a, a form arising in the field of the mind, an appearance, possibly might bear some relation to reality, or none at all. And sensations and thoughts are impermanent. They come and go. And insubstantial, we can begin to see just how insubstantial they are. Even our experience of our body, which we think of as something being something quite solid and continuous, when we start to look closely at it, uh, we find that it's, it's like um, like, a, like a field of, of, uh, of tiny little lights that are going on and off, flashing forth and then disappearing and appearing somewhere else. Very fluid, very um, ephemeral. I had the image um, doing this practice of those uh, those amazing cuttlefish that um, signal with their their skin. They can produce ex these extraordinary colored colorful patterns. Um, males use these to. Um, signal to the to the females when they're uh, breeding and it's it's literally like um, watching a light show and that's a little bit what our, uh, our sensations are like if we step back and and uh, see um, look for the patterns But mostly we don't do that. We, we're caught up in, in the thoughts and the sensations. And we then attach to the ones that we find pleasant or congenial. And we push away the, the ones that are unpleasant, disturbing. And this is precisely what gives our thoughts their power. In fact, they, they derive all their power from how we respond to them. All of their power. 
So it's not a matter in, in, in our practice of, of getting rid of the, the bad thoughts and cultivating the good thoughts. So much as it is not reacting to them, Okay, a painful thought arises. We don't have to panic. Just see it. It'll take care of itself. It'll it'll subside. Just as it as it foamed forth it will it will dissipate the third problem with our minds that we mentioned is um, this idea we have that we know how things are and that we have a, a, a kind of a, a photograph or maybe a movie picture of what it's really like out there in the world independently of us. So we have this sort of uh, objective picture of what's out there. Working on a koan really can um, help us to um, break down that notion that we know what reality is like. And the way that we we do this is with our questioning, whether it's it's mu or what. Essentially, what we're asking is, what is Buddha nature? What is reality? What is my face before my parents gave birth to me? Or before the universe existed. With a koan, we pour all our questions about life and death into this one question. What is Mu? What is this? All our questions about life and death or the meaning of existence who we are, what our place in the world is, all these things that, that um, can, can eat away at us. And all our important questions to answer, but because, because often we have many questions and our energy is scattered between these different issues, that there isn't any kind of momentum to our searching. But when we take up one question like this, we can, we can, we can pull.
pull our our perplexity, our wonderment into into a, a single stream. And the way that that a koan works is um, is when we can we can become completely absorbed in our question, gripped by our perplexity, because in that in that process of becoming the question, of of becoming so focused on it so that it, it, it fills our universe just naturally then we're, we will have abandoned all our ideas and preconceptions about so-called objective reality all our views, all our mental pictures have to be set aside we enter into into a place of not knowing of receptivity radical receptivity openness which is in this this place of of openness of not knowing is highly fertile full of possibilities full of the possibility of seeing things differently of of breaking through uh, free of our preconceptions So, so all of the practices we do are they're about breaking down or deconstructing this mirage we have have um, built up this mirage of a separate self and separate others a separate self that has to be defended against others who are threats to us in different ways they're aimed at, at helping us to to break down our, our, our self-importance our self-concern that, 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 that is, makes us contract tense up when we, when we do see through these reactions then we have this the possibility that we will will be able to experience the wonder 
that the Buddha experienced it as great awakening. The wonder that comes from, from seeing the world as ourself. And seeing also its insubstantiality, its, its luminous emptiness. What uh, Master Hongzhou called the clear circle of brightness. This, this mirage of self that we, that we uh, create is, is simply made up of, of our habits. What Hongzhou called the, the tendencies we have fabricated into, into apparent habits. Apparent habits because they're not as, as solid as we think they are. just made up of a bunch of tendencies. But we can, by taking up these different practices, loosen the grip that these tendencies and habits have on us. We'll return now to um, and look at just one passage in um, our main text, Cultivating the Empty Field, silent the Silent Illumination of Zen Master Hong Zhu, uh, translated by Taigen, Daniel Layton, and Yi Wu. So this passage is um, entitled... Face everything, let go, and attain stability. Vast and far-reaching, without boundary, secluded and pure, manifesting light, this spirit is without obstruction. Its brightness does not shine out, but can be called empty and inherently radiant. Its brightness, inherently purifying, transcends causal conditions beyond subject and object. Subject, subtle but preserved, illumined and vast, also it cannot be spoken of as being or non-being, or discussed with images or calculations. Right in here the central pivot turns, the gateway opens. You accord and respond without laboring and accomplish without hindrance. Everywhere, turn around freely, not following conditions, not falling into classifications. Facing everything, let go and attain stability. Stay with that just as that. Stay with this just as this. That and this are mixed together with no discriminations as to their places. 
So it is said that the earth lifts up the mountain without knowing the mountain's stark steepness. A rock contains jade without knowing the jade's flawlessness. This is how truly to leave home, how home leaving must be embodied. Vast and far-reaching without boundary, secluded and pure, manifesting light, this spirit is without obstruction. Its brightness does not shine out but be, can be called empty and inherently radiating. We can, we can get glimpses of this, this luminosity. This, this brightness that, that um, doesn't shine out, but is, is present in things and in our mind. It's two are not separate. Its brightness, inherently purifying, transcends causal conditions beyond subject and object. Subject and object are uh, things, classifications that we, we create with our discriminating mind. But there is a, a cognition that, that is prior to this, more fundamental, in which those categories don't pertain. Subtle but preserved, illumined and vast, also it cannot be spoken of as being or non-being, or discussed with images or calculations. This is, the, this is really at the heart of the whole um, method that is used to train people in, in Zen, this understanding that, um, that this uh, transcendent truth can't be um, captured by images or words or uh, calculations. The, the, the Renaissance, many of the Renaissance philosophers thought that, that mathematics was the language of God and if one could understand um, the depths of mathematics, then one would be would be seeing the seeing God, and there is some truth to that, to that um, how could you say it that that enterprise of um, exploring reality mathematically, but there is also a, a truth that um, goes beyond that. It cannot be spoken of as being or non-being. This, this, uh, this is at the core of the, um, the koan mu. When a monk asks Joshu, does a dog have the Buddha nature or not? 
Does it have it or does it not have it? We get caught up in these either-or ideas. They, they, we get snagged by them. Right in here, the central pivot turns, the gateway opens. Right here, the central pivot turns. You have to have a space for a central pivot. The essence of it is nothingness. It's how a wheel turns. You accord and respond without laboring and accomplish without hindrance. When you enter this gateway, this gateless gate, then um, everything flows, starts to flow. You accomplish without hindrance because there's no resistance there anymore. You've dropped it. Everywhere, turn around freely, not following conditions, not falling into classifications. This is, this is really one of the, the, the basic lessons we learn in Sishin is to um, not get caught up in present conditions. Some rounds will struggle, other rounds will uh, just, everything will go smoothly. Not to attach to either and not fall into to drawing conclusions from that about ourselves. Facing everything, let go and attain stability. Good add in there, facing everything but clinging to nothing. And that's both sides of clinging, it's aversion and attachment. We attain stability when we are no longer um, thrown by circumstances. Stay with that just as that. Stay with this just as this. That and this are mixed together with no discriminations as to their places. So it is said that the earth lifts up the mountain without knowing the mountain's stark steepness. A rock contains jade without knowing the jade's flawlessness. This is how truly to leave home, how home leaving must be embodied. We look at, at the, the functioning of our, of our world. Um, so much of it 
unfolds without knowing being necessary. When I came in uh, before, um, just after the round started, there was a blackbird that had got got stuck inside. People may have seen it, um, and and my immediate first impulse was to try and try and help it see that the doors were open so that it could get out. But then, after approaching it and it getting all flustered. I realized the best thing to do was just to leave it alone uh, without being disturbed and then then hopefully it would it would find its way out own way out it would it would use its its natural intelligence to discover what it needed to do. Really that's what we're doing in a, in a practice like Shikantaza. What we're doing is um, leaving things alone so that they can find their, their right place. Rather than trying to manipulate things. Well, our time is up. We'll stop here and start four hours.